1: New season out on Spotify soon.
2: November 26, 1922. A Valley of the Kings, Egypt. Archaeologist Howard Carter nervously stood before the tomb's sealed doorway, clutching a hammer and chisel. His patron, Lord Carnarvon, stood a few paces behind him, huddled with his daughter Evelyn and
0: Carter's assistant, Arthur Callender. Carter looked back at Carnarvon, who nodded his head in confirmation. With trembling hands, Carter lifted his tools to the door's top corner. After he opened a small
2: hole in the doorway, he lit a candle and held it up to the breach.
0: At first, it seemed like the small flame wouldn't be able to penetrate the murky darkness. But as Carter's eyes adjusted, he began to see the outlines of what lay inside. Unable to withstand the suspense, Lord
2: Carnarvon asked Carter if he could see anything. After a moment, the archaeologist pried his eyes away from the doorway and turned to face his benefactor.
0: He did see something, wondrous things, but he didn't realize that the tomb contained more than priceless treasures.
2: It also contained a curse. This is Unexplained Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm your host, Molly.
0: And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
2: This is our first episode on Tutankhamen's Curse. In late 1922, 48-year-old English archaeologist Howard Carter discovered this now famous pharaoh's tomb. But in the 12 years after the tomb was opened, many of the people involved with the excavations died under mysterious circumstances. Some believe that these untimely deaths were the result of an ancient curse that Carter and his associates had accidentally released when they first opened the tomb.
0: This week, we'll tell King Tutankhamen's story and delve into why his brief reign was all but forgotten in the following centuries. Then, we'll meet Howard Carter, the archaeologist who eventually rediscovered Tutankhamun's burial site and may have unwittingly unleashed an ancient curse.
2: Next week, we'll examine the deaths that followed Carter's discovery. We'll try to determine if they were a result of Tutankhamun's dark magic, and if not, try to find an explanation for why so many people involved with the discovery met tragic ends.
0: At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the
2: best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more
0: information. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
2: Ancient Egypt first became a unified kingdom around 3100 BCE under the rule of a pharaoh named Menes. The empire would last until 31 BCE when Cleopatra died
0: and Egypt fell under Roman rule. In total, ancient Egypt had about 30 dynasties, meaning a time period in which the same royal family held power. But despite the frequent political upheaval, A major reason Egypt was able to remain unified was its powerful religion.
2: There were over 2,000 gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, with each playing a specific role in everyday life. The most powerful deities had their own cults, or groups of people specifically dedicated to worshipping them. The priests who oversaw these cults had tremendous power in Egyptian society.
0: In addition to their religious duties, these high priests also held important administrative positions within the Egyptian government. In times of political instability, they would make sure the country continued to run smoothly.
2: One of the most influential cults in Egyptian society was that of Amun-Ra, the god of the sun and air. By around 1,500 BCE, his priests had become so powerful that they rivaled the royal family in wealth and stature.
0: But all that changed in 1353 BCE, when Pharaoh Amenhotep IV came to power. Five years into his reign, Amenhotep outlawed the worship of all gods except for the sun god Aten.
2: Under Amenhotep's decree, Aten became the sole god and was regarded as the creator of the universe. All other cults were deemed illegal. Their temples were closed and their holdings were confiscated or
0: reassigned to the cult of Aten. To cement the new power structure, Amenhotep IV changed his name to Akhenaten, roughly translated to, of great use to Aten. Additionally, he moved the Egyptian capital from Thebes, which had served as the capital for the past 300 years or so, to a city he had built from the ground up, called Akhetaten, known today as Amarna.
2: It was during this turbulent period that Tutankhamun came into the world. Born around 1343 BCE, he was the son of Akhenaten and Akhenaten's sister, whose name is unknown.
0: Incest and polyamory were common for the Egyptian royal family during this period. In order to keep their claim to the throne secure, they would often marry each other. Additionally, they wanted to keep their bloodlines pure, since pharaohs were seen as living gods in their own right. As a result of this practice, Tutankhamen was born with a number of defects and was extremely frail for his entire short life. He was plagued with a painful bone disease and had trouble walking due to a clubbed left foot. Akhenaten died suddenly in 1336 BCE, when Tutankhamun was only seven years old. Perhaps because of his young age, two unknown pharaohs ruled for about two years until Tutankhamun took the throne. Thrust into a role he still wasn't ready to inherit, the nine-year-old ruler immediately bowed to pressure from his advisors and reversed all his father's reforms.
2: Tutankhamun restored the traditional pantheon and moved the Egyptian capital away from Amarna and back to the palace at Thebes, but that was the least of the challenges he faced. His father had badly neglected his duties to the army, and it was difficult for the sickly Tutankhamun to keep the powerful Hittite empire at bay.
0: The struggles at home and abroad may have been too much for Tutankhamun to handle. As he entered his teens, he suffered from several bouts of malaria. Weakened by his various illnesses,
2: Tutankhamun died sometime around 1324 BCE when his left leg became infected by necrosis, or the death of bone tissue. He was somewhere between 17 and 19 years old.
0: Although Tutankhamun was sickly, His death was unexpected. His intended tomb was still under construction at the time of his death, and tradition necessitated that he had to be mummified and entombed immediately.
2: As such, he was interred in a smaller tomb, most likely intended for an aristocrat or a high priest. Some historians believe it had been built for Tutankhamun's stepmother, Queen Nefertiti.
0: The young king left no living heirs. Following the family tradition, he had married his half-sister. They had two children together, but they were both stillborn. After a brief three-year reign by a royal advisor named Ai, the powerful Egyptian general Haremheb became pharaoh.
2: As pharaoh, Haremheb continued Tutankhamun's reversals of Akhenaten's religious reforms. Haremheb believed that what Akhenaten had done was so egregious that he even altered the official records to say that his rule had begun in 1353 BCE, the year Akhenaten became pharaoh.
0: Even though Tutankhamun had also reversed his father's policies, his place in history was a victim of Haremheb's effort to erase all traces of Akhenaten's reign. There was no official record of Tutankhamun's brief rule and that included any mention of where he was buried.
2: In the ensuing millennia, the desert sands slowly piled atop Tutankhamun's eternal resting place. Haremheb's mission to destroy Akhenaten's legacy had succeeded. Nobody even knew he or his son Tutankhamun had ever existed.
0: Hopefully, this gives you an indication as to how dense some of the history from this period was.
2: One of the reasons Tut was so fascinating to archaeologists was that virtually no records existed from his reign. Because of Haremheb's efforts, historians had to deal with piecemeal and often conflicting information to get a complete picture of this contentious period in Egyptian history.
0: In an ironic twist, it was Haremheb's efforts to remove Tutankhamun from the history books that ensured the young king would become the most famous pharaoh of all time.
2: When Egyptian pharaohs died, they were traditionally buried with a number of treasures to take to the afterlife. However, this practice made the tomb susceptible to grave robbers willing to risk the god's wrath. Additionally, by plundering the mummy's sarcophagi, these thieves exposed them to elements that hastened their decomposition. So, when archaeologists discovered the tombs thousands of years later, the original occupants were often damaged or incomplete.
0: But since Tutankhamun's tomb had been forgotten, it remained relatively undisturbed. After two break-ins during Horemheb's reign, Tutankhamun's treasures remained untouched for over 3,000 years. Over the ensuing
2: centuries, Egypt's power gradually faded. Judeo-Christian monotheism replaced the traditional pagan pantheon, and many of ancient Egypt's
0: cultural traditions were left by the wayside. While many of the massive pyramids and temples from the time of the pharaohs remained, interest in them waned. Without the ability to decipher the hieroglyphics that covered their walls, there was almost no way for scholars to study an empire that had existed for thousands of years.
2: However, that all changed in 1798 when Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt.
0: The next year, while some of Napoleon's soldiers were rebuilding an ancient fort near the city of Rosetta, they discovered a stone tablet that was inscribed with writing in Greek, Demotic, and hieroglyphics. Known as the Rosetta Stone, it was the key to unlocking the ancient Egyptian symbols.
2: In 1822, the French scholar Jean-Francois Champollion successfully translated the hieroglyphics on the Rosetta Stone. Armed with this newfound knowledge, European explorers and archaeologists quickly began to scour Egypt for lost treasures.
0: At first, excavations in Egypt were little more than a free-for-all as wealthy collectors hired archaeologists to search for artifacts in the desert. Soon, England, France, the United States, and Germany all began sending governmental expeditions to collect materials for museum exhibits. Many archaeological sites doubled as tourist destinations where visitors could purchase tickets to visit ancient temples and open tombs.
2: By the mid-19th century, the study of ancient Egypt became a field unto itself known as Egyptology. But the chaotic, colonialist battle over who could collect the most artifacts was becoming untenable. Scholars realized that if their studies were going to continue, more organization was needed.
0: In 1880, a 27-year-old English archaeologist named William Flinders Petrie pioneered more detailed excavation methods, many of which are still practiced today. His meticulous organizational system earned him the nickname father of pots. Petrie's sterling reputation earned him a post with the Egypt
2: Exploration Fund, and he began leading his own expeditions in 1884. He quickly became one of the world's leading Egyptologists, excavating sites all across the country.
0: In 1891, as Petrie was gearing up for a dig at Akhenaten's short-lived capital of Amarna, he was introduced to a 17-year-old English artist named Howard Carter.
2: From a young age, Carter had shown an aptitude for drawing and painting. He was fascinated with ancient Egypt, and in early 1891, he accompanied a wealthy family friend to a burial site at Beni Hassan.
0: As Carter recreated the intricate paintings on the tomb's walls, the expedition's archaeologists were impressed by his ability to capture details without the aid of stencils, graphs, or tools. He was recommended to a three-month training program at the British Museum, after which he was offered a position on Petrie's project at Amarna. Carter quickly showed an aptitude
2: for all forms of Egyptology beyond his art and became one of the youngest archaeologists working in Egypt. In his early 20s, he became an inspector in the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. In 1899, when Carter was 25, he became the chief inspector for all of northern Egypt, working with renowned
0: Egyptologist Theodore M. Davis in the Valley of the Kings. This necropolis, or City of the Dead, was located on the Nile's west bank near the city of Luxor. It contained the tombs of Egyptian royalty and nobles from the New Kingdom era, which lasted from approximately 1539 to 1075 BCE containing over 60 tombs, the Valley of the Kings was and continues to be one of the world's most significant archaeological sites.
2: As a young, self-taught archaeologist, it was a huge honor for Carter to be working in such a storied location. Using techniques he had learned from William Flinders Petrie, Carter pioneered a grid system to meticulously map the locations of the various tombs he and
0: Davis discovered. In early 1905, Davis and Carter discovered a small cache of funerary items that seemed to have been hidden away by some ancient grave robbers. In this small trove, there was a cup made with faience, a glassy substance used in ancient Egyptian jewelry and statuary. As he turned the cup over in his hands, Carter
2: marveled at its craftsmanship. He wondered if it had belonged to any of the royalty whose tombs he had excavated.
0: Finding out wouldn't be difficult. Most funerary items like these usually bore the name of whoever's tomb it was placed in.
2: Sure enough, there was a small hieroglyphic inscription on the cup. It read Tutankhamen. Carter knew the name of every pharaoh that had been discovered at that point, but he'd never heard of Tutankhamen. He wondered if there was another tomb out there that had escaped their attention.
0: Carter stared long and hard at the inscription on the cup. Whatever it took, he would find this mysterious Tutankhamun, even if it cost him his career.
2: Coming up, Howard Carter and a new ally scour the Valley of the Kings for Tutankhamun's tomb. But in doing so, they risk activating an ancient curse.
0: And now back to the story.
2: In 1905, Theodore Davis and Howard Carter discovered a cache of ancient Egyptian artifacts in the Valley of the Kings. Among these goods was a small faience cup bearing the name Tutankhamun.
0: Personally, Davis didn't take much stock in it. He and Carter had exhaustively surveyed the Valley of the Kings and discovered 60 tombs. By now, Davis was certain they wouldn't be finding any more. If there were a tomb for this mysterious Tutankhamun, it would have already been discovered.
2: But Carter wasn't so sure. He was determined to find where Tutankhamun was buried.
0: However, for the next few months, Carter's work took him north to the Saqqara necropolis near Cairo. Later
2: that year, Carter was sitting in his office when he heard a panicked knock at his
0: door. His head foreman had come to report that a party of drunken French tourists were demanding entry to the Serapeum, which housed the oldest graves in the necropolis. Even though they didn't possess the correct tickets to enter, they were insisting to be let in.
2: Carter quickly threw on a jacket and followed the foreman to the scene.
0: They arrived just in time to see one of the unruly tourists strike one of the Egyptian guards. The scene quickly devolved into a
2: fist fight. Carter tried to break it up, but the tourists refused to back down. Carter was determined to keep them out of the Serapium at all costs. He ordered his men to fight back.
0: In the ensuing fracas, one of Carter's men knocked down one of the Frenchmen. Enraged, the tourist lodged a formal complaint with his ambassador.
2: At the time, Egypt was very much under the control of colonialist influence. It didn't matter that the tourist had been in the wrong. The native Egyptians were viewed as inferior to Europeans, and the French ambassador demanded an apology. Carter refused to give it.
0: As a consequence, Carter was forced to resign from his post in October 1905.
2: Despite his impressive track record, Carter struggled to secure a new job. With no archaeological prospects on the horizon, he returned to the life of an artist, selling
0: watercolors on the streets of Cairo. But Carter's former colleagues at the Department of Antiquities still held him in high regard. Although he would never be able to work in an official governmental capacity again, they kept their eyes out for any opportunities with private financiers. In 1907, Carter got his
2: second chance when he was introduced to George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, better known as the 5th Earl of Carnarvon.
0: Born in 1866, Lord Carnarvon had a deep love of adventure and excitement. In the 1890s, he developed an avid passion for the fledgling sport of automobile racing. It wasn't rare to see him speeding through the city streets at an unheard-of 20 miles per hour.
2: But in 1901, Carnarvon paid the price for his recklessness when he got into a serious car accident in Germany.
0: His injuries weakened his immune system, and he struggled with the damp, cold English climate. In 1903, he started spending the winter months in Cairo. However, the excitement-starved Carnarvon found life in Egypt rather dull. To help pass the time, he took up Egyptology as a hobby. Although he had zero archaeological experience,
2: Lord Carnarvon was able to secure a small concession, which was an exclusive permit to excavate near the ancient capital of Thebes.
0: After six weeks of digging... All Carnarvon's men were able to find was a single mummified cat. Although the excavations yielded little in the way of results, the anticipation of what might lie beneath the ground was enough to sate his craving for excitement.
2: At the same time, Carnarvon realized that if he was going to achieve anything notable in the field of Egyptology, he would need the help of a more experienced scholar. The only problem was that anyone worth their salt was already employed by an organization with a stronger track record. There was only one man who was still available.
0: In 1907, Carnarvon's contacts brought him the file on Howard Carter. Carnarvon didn't care about Carter's incident at Saqqara. He needed a scholar, and Carter needed a financier.
2: But their partnership was far more than a marriage of convenience. Both men were extremely competitive. Carnarvon wanted to show that he was more than a bored man with money to burn, and Carter was desperate to restore his reputation as one of the world's finest
0: archaeologists. In their first season together in 1907, Carnarvon and Carter continued to work near Thebes. But this time, they dug up much more than a mummified cat. Over the span of just a few
2: months, they discovered two separate tombs that provided valuable insight into ancient Egyptian culture. The first was the impressively decorated tomb of Titiki, who was the mayor of Thebes sometime around 1500 BCE.
0: The second tomb, while lacking a mummy, contained a wooden tablet inscribed with the precepts of Patahotep. Dating back to about 2200 BCE, these precepts were a set of instructions for moral guidance. Although these precepts had already been discovered by archaeologists decades earlier, the copy that Carter and Carnarvon found also contained an account of the expulsion of the Hyksos people from Egypt around 1550 BCE.
2: The fact that a set of moral guidelines from 2200 BCE was still being recorded in 1550, nearly 700 years later, was remarkable. It showed the continuity of ancient Egyptian culture, despite power shifting with various dynasties over the centuries.
0: Over the next few years, Carter and Carnarvon continued to make impressive discoveries across Thebes, including temples dedicated to Queen Hatshepsut and pharaoh Ramses IV. As they grew more successful, they also grew more ambitious. While they enjoyed working in the ruins of Thebes, Carter and Carnarvon wanted to be where the real heavy hitters were, the Valley of the Kings.
2: Carter still wanted to search the area for the tomb of the mysterious Tutankhamun. In order to do so, he and Carnarvon would need to secure a concession to excavate in the Valley of the Kings. However, Carter's former boss, Theodore Davis, still had the exclusive concession to dig in the Valley of the Kings.
0: Although Davis was certain that he had already discovered all the major tombs in the Valley, he wasn't ready to give up his concession. There were still valuable artifacts to be found, and it was also a major status symbol to have total dominion over the work that went on there.
2: But Davis was getting older. When he retired, Carter and Carnarvon would get the chance to take over his concession. However, they knew others were waiting as well. When the time came to apply, they wanted to have the most impressive resume possible.
0: The partners continued their work in Thebes, hoping to make a discovery that would secure them the reputation they needed.
2: That discovery came in the form of the tomb of the pharaoh Amenhotep I. Although the tomb had been looted by ancient and modern grave robbers alike, Carter was still able to uncover a trove of inscribed vessel fragments, including an intricately carved scarab amulet.
0: While Carter and Carnarvon had made impressive discoveries before, this was their first royal tomb. It cemented them as some of Egypt's top archaeologists, and when Theodore Davis gave up his concession in September 1914, it went to Carter and Carnarvon.
2: Carter was elated. Finally, he had the chance to find Tutankhamun's tomb. But just as he was preparing his search, the outbreak of World War I forced him to delay his work. Pressed into service as a diplomatic courier, Carter was unable to begin the excavations for another three
0: years. By December 1917, the fighting had died down enough for Carter to begin his work in earnest. Employing a systematic grid system, Carter began scouring every inch of the valley for signs of the elusive Tutankhamun.
2: While Carter was able to uncover a few tombs, none of them contained any major artifacts or mummies. His first season in the Valley of the Kings was a bust.
0: The next season was similarly fruitless. And the one after that, and the one after that. By the beginning of 1922, Carter and Carnarvon hadn't made any notable discoveries in the Valley of the Kings. Carnarvon began to suspect that Davis had been right. Maybe there wasn't anything new to find there.
2: Before the excavation season began, Carnarvon summoned Carter to his estate in England for a meeting.
0: Carnarvon informed Carter that he was frustrated with the lack of progress. He was giving up.
2: Carter begged him to reconsider. He knew that Tutankhamun's tomb was out there somewhere. He even offered to fund the digs with his own money, even though the concession remained in Carnarvon's name.
0: Carnarvon was impressed by his resolve. He agreed to fund another season of digging, but if they didn't find anything noteworthy, it would be the last. For luck, he presented Carter with a gift to take back with him to Cairo, a golden canary.
2: On November 1st, 1922, Howard Carter, now 48 years old, began his final effort to find Tutankhamun's tomb. If he once again came up with nothing, it was likely that he would die having never achieved the greatest goal of his life.
0: Carter realized that there was one place in the valley he hadn't fully excavated. A few years earlier, his men had uncovered some unremarkable workers' huts. Carter wondered if maybe, just maybe, something else might lie underneath.
2: Carter ordered his men to carefully dismantle the huts. On November 4th, their third day of working, a young water carrier stumbled over what appeared to be a small rock crevasse.
0: As Carter helped the carrier to his feet, he realized that the boy hadn't tripped over a crevasse. It was actually
2: a step. Perhaps the Golden Canary really had been lucky. By the end of the day on November 5th, Carter's team had uncovered a series of 12 steps and the upper portion of a mud-sealed entrance.
0: Carter frantically checked to see if the door bore the name of whomever it belonged to. It didn't, but it did have the seal of the Royal Necropolis. Whoever was inside had been very important.
2: Reminiscing in a later memoir, Carter wrote of the moment, the design was of the 18th dynasty. Could it be the tomb of a noble buried here by royal consent? Was it a royal cache, a hiding place to which a mummy and its equipment had been removed for safety? Or was it actually the tomb of the king for whom I had spent so many years in
0: search? Although he was aching to keep digging, Carter knew Lord Carnarvon would want to be present to see the full entrance unveiled. The name of the tomb's occupant, would probably be lowered down on the door, and he wanted his longtime partner to be present for their triumph.
2: Returning to Cairo to send Carnarvon a telegram, Carter stopped by his house to check on the canary. But when he arrived, the servant who watched the house was waiting outside, panicked. A cobra had eaten the bird.
0: Cobras were a symbol of royal power in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh's headdresses often had a cobra carved into them to ward off enemies. The servant believed that this was a warning not to disturb the tomb. But Carter
2: wasn't going to let the greatest discovery of his life be derailed by an old
0: superstition.
2: He telegrammed Carnarvon to come to Cairo at once.
0: On November 23, 1922, Lord Carnarvon and his 22-year-old daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, arrived in Egypt. The next day, the workers uncovered the full doorway to the tomb.
2: With the rest of the seal uncovered, Carter rushed to examine it for a name. There it was, plastered over the door for all to see. Tutankhamun.
0: Coming up, the excavation begins. And now, back to the story.
2: From 1917 to 1922, Egyptologist Howard Carter scoured the Valley of the Kings for the tomb of the mysterious Tutankhamun. On November 4, 1922, the third day of his final season, Carter discovered a set of 12
0: stairs descending to a previously undiscovered tomb. Just as he had hoped, it bore the name Tutankhamun. Carter was elated but his jubilation was quickly replaced by concern. It was evident that the tomb had been opened on at least two previous occasions. There was the possibility that when they opened the door, they'd find little more than dust.
2: Further compounding the sense of dread, on the morning of November 25th, the day they were scheduled to open the entrance, Carter's workers spotted a hawk flying to the west.
0: Like the cobra eating the canary, this sight was also considered a bad omen. According to the ancient Roman practice of augury, or interpreting omens from the flight of birds, someone who saw a hawk should be on guard against those more powerful than themselves. Flying to the west also indicated danger. This
2: omen could indicate that Tutankhamun's spirit was sending a message not to open the tomb. While the hawk sighting didn't help calm his already fraying nerves, Carter had come too far to be scared off by a bird. He ordered
0: his workers to open the tomb. The tomb's entrance opened into a long, dark passageway. It was filled in with a barrier of limestone chips, which Carter assumed had been put there to block grave robbers. Carter wasn't sure if it had worked. The upper corner
2: of the limestone barrier was filled with different colored stone, meaning it had most likely been refilled after grave robbers had dug through it. However, it seemed like they had only been able to dig out a small portion of the barrier. They would have only been able to take out a few small items at a time.
0: The rest of the day was spent clearing the limestone fill from the 26-foot hallway. At the end of the passage, there was another sealed door, almost identical to the one that had enclosed the entryway. As with the first
2: door, there were signs that this one had been broken into and then resealed. When they opened it, they might find a collection of priceless artifacts, or they might find nothing at all.
0: Much to Carter and Lord Carnarvon's annoyance, they had to wait for an inspector from the Egyptian Antiquities Service to be present. officially open the door, but they couldn't help themselves. On the night of November 26th, Carter, Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Carter's assistant, Arthur Callender, decided they had to see what waited beyond that door.
2: In Carter's memoir, he described the nerve-wracking process of peeking through a hole in the door. At first, I could see nothing the hot air escaping from the chamber, causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold.
0: When the official inspector arrived on November 29th, Carter's workmen fully opened the door. The room, referred to as the antechamber, was full of the treasures Carter had glimpsed through the small hole. The wall
2: opposite the door was piled from the ceiling to the floor with golden boxes, chairs, couches, and other scattered items. The left side of the room contained parts of dismantled chariots. The right side had two life-sized statues of Tutankhamun, guarding yet another sealed door. Like the others, this door also showed signs that it had been broken into
0: and resealed. But there was even more. As he gazed at the incredible treasures before him, Carter spotted a second sealed door behind the couches on the far wall. Unsurprisingly, this one had also been broken into. But unlike the others, it had never been resealed. Carter
2: crawled under the couches and shone his light through the hole in the door. Unlike the relatively orderly antechamber, this room, which Carter dubbed
0: the Annex, was in complete disarray. In his memoir, Carter described the scene that lay before him. This was no ordinary find to be disposed of in a normal season's work, nor was there any precedent to show us how to handle it. The thing was outside all experience, bewildering, and for the moment it seemed as though there was more to be done than any human agency could accomplish. Indeed,
2: the process of documenting their new discoveries was extremely slow. Before they could further explore the annex or the room that lay beyond the two statues, they had to clear the antechamber.
0: With the sheer volume and fragility of the objects, it took seven weeks to document everything. First, they had to photograph every object in its natural state, both with and without an identification card.
2: Next, the objects had to be physically removed from the tomb. But it wasn't as simple as picking them up and carrying them out. Many items were extremely fragile. For example, there were beaded sandals whose threading had disintegrated. In order to safely move them, they had to be carefully treated with celluloid spray without contaminating the other objects around them.
0: Once the artifacts were removed, the porters had to keep the objects away from the hundreds of tourists and journalists who gathered outside the tomb every day. The treasures were then taken to a makeshift conservation laboratory in another nearby tomb, where they were carefully packed into wooden crates and sent to Cairo. Finally,
2: on February 16, 1923, it was time to open the door
0: between the two guardian statues. For the past several months, Carter had wondered what lay beyond that door. With the added security around the tomb, he had been unable to take a look inside like he had done with the antechamber. He had no idea what was in that room or what wasn't. The moment the sealed door was removed,
2: Carter's worries vanished. The entire chamber was dominated by a massive, gilded shrine that was 16 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 9 feet tall. Unlike the rest of the tomb, whose rooms were rough-cut rock, this chamber's walls had been smoothed and painted with
0: funeral scenes. After inspecting the shrine, Carter realized that it was actually just an outer shell with another gold-plated bejeweled shrine within it. Then there was a third shrine nested within the second one. Inside that shrine was a fourth.
2: The fourth shrine held the greatest treasure of all, Tutankhamun's sarcophagus. It was made from a single piece of quartzite with an elaborate sculpture of the young pharaoh carved on top of the lid.
0: Within the sarcophagus was a gilded wooden coffin, nearly seven and a half feet tall. But even in his excitement, Carter knew he couldn't open it right then and there. First, everything needed to be catalogued and preserved.
2: Once the tomb was mostly cleared of its contents, Carter returned to Cairo to supervise the conservation efforts. Meanwhile, Lord Carnarvon headed to the city of Aswan on February 28th for a brief vacation.
0: While in Aswan, Carnarvon suffered what looked like an innocuous mosquito bite on his cheek. Shortly after, Carnarvon accidentally cut the bite
2: open while shaving.
0: Even though he immediately dressed the cut, his wound quickly became infected. He contracted a fever and was confined to bed rest for two days. After a brief recovery, he immediately fell ill again. He arranged to have himself moved to the Continental Savoy Hotel in Cairo.
2: Unfortunately, the hotel's luxurious comforts weren't enough to restore his health. Carnarvon contracted pneumonia and septicemia, also known as blood poisoning. He died in the early hours of April 5th, 1923, just a few months after making the discovery of a lifetime.
0: Five minutes before Carnarvon died, Cairo's entire power grid went out. Nobody knew what caused the outage, and nobody knew what made it suddenly come back on again five minutes later.
2: But as news began to spread of the famous aristocrat's death, whispers emerged of a dark reason behind his passing. Newspapers started printing stories of a dire warning in Tutankhamun's tomb
0: that Carter and Carnarvon had ignored. The stories claimed that they had found a clay tablet in the tomb's antechamber that read, Death shall come on swift wings to him that toucheth the tomb of the pharaoh. The disease
2: that had killed Carnarvon may have been a natural one, But people began to wonder if perhaps it hadn't been brought on by natural causes.
0: It was a curse, and Carnarvon wouldn't be its only victim. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Thursday with part two of King Tutankhamun's Curse. In next week's episode, we'll take a closer
2: look at the mysterious deaths that followed the discovery of King Tut's tomb. We'll see if they could really be the result of a dark curse or if there might be a more conventional explanation.
0: You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
2: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a
0: five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
2: Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden, this episode was written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.